Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 2. So my name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to get to be with you tonight. So I love the Old Testament. I think it's really fun. It's one of my favorite things to do is, is study the Old Testament. They're, the stories in them are so exciting and gripping, and you almost don't have to do any work at all to make them compelling. So like for my kids, I was having a hard time a few weeks ago getting them to go to bed. And so as they're being completely disobedient to me and they're running around the house, I go, oh my gosh. And they go, what? And I go, I, I have to tell you guys this story. It's a true story. And they go, what? And I go, there was a guy who was swallowed by a whale. And they go, what? And I go, if you get in your bed, I'll tell you the whole story. And it works. And we did that for Daniel in the lion's den. And I just got story after story. What's awesome about the Old Testament stories is they're really fun and they're really exciting to read. And they illustrate so well God's power and his, his goodness and you just hardly have to do any work with them in order to see how great our God is. And so now that we're back in the Old Testament narrative and story, I'm, I'm really stoked about it. And as we study and as um, for me and for the people that, that teach kids or youth or, or have Bible studies, the thing that is always so important to remember when we're in these Old Testament stories, for me, it's two things. One of them, it's, it's what Jesus says in John chapter 5 that there are people who search the scriptures and in them hoping to find eternal life when really they all bear witness to Jesus, that it's all about Jesus, that everything in the Old Testament, every story, every, everything that's going on just bear witness, bears witness to Jesus and our need for Jesus. So like in Judges where there's gonna be dark story and dark story and depraved person and chaos is all showing, man, we really need Jesus. Like this is even good God's people. This is what the cycles they go into. If you don't have Jesus, you need Jesus. And all through it, you see God being completely faithful with an absolutely faithless people. And so the first thing that I always have to remember is it's, it's all about Jesus and that Jesus has been doing something. Jesus is consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's really fun about our chapter is I'm so lucky Jesus is actually in this chapter, which is pretty cool. Um, the second thing I always have to remember is when I'm teaching my kids about the Old Testament is it's not just a story. It's not just a fun story that I happen to have a Bible and I have access to. It's supposed to act in a way like a mirror for you and me to look at where we're at and go, okay, God, is this, is this me? Am, am I the kind of person that, that I, I say I trust you and then all of my actions show that I don't trust you and then as a result, I miss out on blessing, and then I'm a crybaby. Like, is this me? And a lot of times it is. And so I go, well, I don't want to do this. So, okay, Jesus, I want to change that. So for me, there's it's always those two things. I have to remember, it's always about Jesus. It all points us to our need for Jesus. And secondly, it's, it, it acts like a mirror, and I need to ask myself, okay, God, what do you want to tell me in this? So this, these first three chapters of Judges is still kind of setting the stage, it's getting us prepared for where we're headed, and it's explaining to us how we got to where we're at. So chapter one looked at Caleb, looked at how people allowed um, these tribes and the Canaanites and the people that God said, move them out because they're going to be a snare to you, that they didn't. They didn't do it all the way. 
And the best illustration that I read about it is it's like a surgeon who is cutting out cancer to be like, well, this little bit of cancer deserves the right to grow and to flourish. So let's just let it go. And it's like, that's crazy. Like, that's gonna hurt you. And that's exactly what God said. If you don't get rid of this, it's gonna be a snare to you and it's gonna hurt your kids and your kids' kids. And it's crazy because God was right. Like, who saw that coming? That's what happens. And the book of Judges shows us, like, story after story, this is what happens when you just don't listen to God. So the book of Judges really shows us um, a people without leadership. They lose all of God's gifts because they choose to coexist with the enemy and to follow the enemy's gods and to do some of the things that the enemy does. And it really illustrates for us and shows us so well what a faithful God does with the unfaithful people. And so let's just jump into Judges chapter two, verse one. Now the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So this is for me a super interesting little tidbit. In all ancient Jewish scholarship about the Bible, and, and they always reference a second Yahweh character, that there's the transcendent Yahweh who's enthroned, he oversees the world, he's in charge, he's the creator God, absolutely, but there's an equal Yahweh who shows up in physical form and has a discussion with Abraham and shows up right here, but it's not like God leaves his throne and somehow he's in both places at once, and so they call it, it's the second Yahweh figure. And you and I know the second Yahweh figure as the physical representation of the transcendent God. We have a name for him because he comes later to be incarnated as Jesus. And what's interesting is because of Jesus, Jewish literature, literature doesn't say that anymore. They don't talk about a second Yahweh character because it too clearly points us to Jesus. So Jesus shows up and he shows up to this people. And here's what he says to them. What have you done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. So Jesus shows up and he says, before we're introduced to a single judge, Jesus shows up and he, and he looks at the people who have disobeyed, who have allowed the people to stay. And he's asked them, what did you do? And really, what, what did they do? They they chose to be tolerant with a small group of people. They battled for days and days and it was a long conquest and they just want to get settled and go home and, and they just start talking amongst themselves. They're like, hey, it's like 10 people over there. They're not hurting anyone. It's like, what's the big deal, right? Like, it's not hurting anybody. Let's just let them do their thing. Like, we'll keep our, our kids won't play with their kids. And then that happens, and then there's people all around the county just going, ah, you know, it's not, not, it's not a big deal. We're just not going to deal with it. Like, it, it's not going to hurt anyone, whatever. And that's what we do all of the time, isn't it? That there's stuff that we go, you know, that's, that's just not really a big deal. So what if, if I get drunk with my buddies? Or so what if I watch a little bit of porn? You know, it's not hurting anybody. I'm not participating in anything. So what if my kids watch those movies? You know, their friends are watching those movies. I don't want my, friend, my kid to be the weird kid that doesn't see the 
Terminator movies, you know? Like, what's the big deal? And everything, every sin that becomes a big snare, a big problem, always starts out as something small like that, where we go, oh, you know what? I've got this under control. This isn't really a big deal. Like, can't we just chill out? Do we even really have to talk about this? It's not a big thing. And that's what happens with the Israelites. And so Jesus shows up and he goes, what have you done? It's like for me, when I'm at home and it's like that, quiet, I know something really bad is happening with my kids. You know what I mean? So then I'll get up and I'll try to find out where they are. And like more times than not, I'll come around the corner and the five-year-old and the three-year-old have teamed up and are duct taping the six-month-old to the wall, you know, something like that. And they're enjoying themselves, they're having a good time, it's quiet, and I'll come up behind them and I'll go, what are you doing? And they'll flip around, "Ah," you know, like they'll do that because they knew what they were doing was wrong, right? In the moment, it was fine, like, hey, what's the big deal? We're just kind of doing our thing. What you're doing is wrong and you know it's wrong. You know it's bad when Jesus has to show up and be like, what are you doing? That's what he does. For me, we're all in a place where we get saved and Jesus wants us to become more and more like him, where we need to say to God what the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in your everlasting way. Daily, we need to be people who pray that prayer and we all have little things in us, just little roots that could become giant snares to us and snares to our kids. And we need to be people, I believe, who say, okay, God, what do you want me to change? What do I need to just take care of? What can't I have in my home? Because I definitely don't want to have what Paul had, where Jesus gets off his throne and shows up and says, what are you doing? Like he does here too. No, I think we all have those kind of things. And I know I don't want my kids to end up where they're at. So for me, that's just what I feel like the Lord was speaking to me. Like, okay, Jesus, help me find out those things. Search me. Seek in me, help me find those things, reveal those things so that, and then give me the strength and the courage to remove them. And it's a good thing, I think, to contemplate and to meditate on and to ask God of regularly. And then here's what they do. As soon as the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum. And they sacrificed there to Yahweh. One of the things that I always love to do, it, it's like when I have a little bit of free time, is I like to watch Chris Hansen on YouTube. Do you know him? So Chris Hansen, what he does is he rents out a house like an Airbnb, and he fills the garage full of police officers. And then he, he, he online chats with strange men as if he's an underage child. And these men come over to do nefarious, wicked things. And instead of seeing a child, they're greeted by Chad Hanson. Wait, it's not Chad Hanson. It'd be way worse if it was Chad Hanson. No, it's Chris Hanson, Dateline NBC. And they have a conversation. And what's funny is how many of them you'll see just start weeping and start crying. And you know what? The, the officers never go, oh, okay, he's crying. He didn't mean it, guys. Let's send him on his way. He learned his lesson. They don't do that because they're sad. They're crying because of the consequences that are happening. But there's no repentance. And here's what's interesting that the Israelites do is I believe they start trying to treat God like any of the other religions in the area. They start trying to offer sacrifices to the Lord to make him happy again. 
Because that's what you do with all the other gods. You just give them more sacrifices and then they'll be stoked with you. Here's what's so interesting about Christianity is when Christianity first really, like the, the disciples, are, the apostles are spreading the word and the church is growing, it was not considered a religion. It was, it was like the anti-religion because that's not how you approach God. What they're teaching isn't how you approach God. In fact, for 200 years, the Romans considered Christian, Christians to be atheists because that's not how you approach God. The way that we're supposed to come to our God is so opposite of what every other religion teaches. And so the Israelites right here don't have a grasp on that. They don't know God. They're just trying to offer sacrifices, see if they can rub the genie right to make them happy with them again. Because that's what the Canaanites would do. That's what they learned from their neighbors. Well, if I could just get you, if I could just give you the right things and kill the right stuff and say the right prayers, then we can go back to how things were. But it's not a changing of their heart. God will say that he doesn't want people who get all weepy and rip their clothes. He wants people who rip their heart and say, okay, God, I want to change. He says in Hosea 6, verse 6, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. That's the heart of our God. And the Israelites, they don't understand that. And they, they swiftly switch to pagan practices and how they approach God is completely wrong and it's, it's worldly. And I think that we can often try to play God in the same way. And we say, okay, God, if you just do this, I'll go to church every Sunday. God, if, if you can just let this happen, I'll start reading my Bible. My favorite illustration of it is Homer Simpson, where his life is falling apart and he gets on his knees and like the whole background is shaking and he's going, okay, God, this time I mean it. I, I, I swear if you can save me from this, if you can make it better, I'll go to church every day. I'll give you all my money. I'll do all of this. And then things get fixed and he goes, I didn't say amen, doesn't count, woo! Like he tricked God, you know? <laughs> but that's what we try to do. We try to see if we can play God and God's not interested in that. God wants a people with hearts tuned to him who want to know him and want to be a part of his ways and who want to partner with him in changing the world to how he wants it to be, ordered and full of people who are compassionate and kind and generous like he is. It's always about relationship. And so here's what happens. Um, verse six, we're going back to Joshua. So what's interesting is the author of Judges isn't interested in giving you a chronological history. He'll throw a bunch of different stories at once to give you kind of the foundation of here's how we got to where we're at. And so these first few verses parallel the end of Joshua chapter 24, where if you were super familiar with the book of Joshua, you'd be like, I've read this before somewhere. But the last verse is very, very, very different. So it says, verse six, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works that Yahweh had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And so all of that so far has been read in Joshua chapter 24. This verse is not in Joshua. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers 
And there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh or the work that he had done for Israel. So what happened? They don't know God or the work that he had done. Somehow they failed to do what God explicitly told them to say in Joshua chapter four. In Joshua chapter four, in two places, God has them uh, stack rocks and says, when you bring your children here, this is what you'll say to them when they ask you, hey, what does that, what does those rocks mean to you? Somehow they didn't pass on the info to their kids in a way that would cause them to know God. And here's what's really interesting for me. Samuel authored Judges, according to Jewish tradition, and and authored the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. And in both of those books, there's this phrase that comes up in very similar story and circumstances. The phrase, did not know Yahweh. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, you get this picture of a guy whose name is Eli. And Eli's a priest. He should know God, right? Know God's expectation for him, and he does. And he does a pretty good job, you know? And so he's doing the work that he's supposed to do, but here's the information that we get about his family. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. It says, now the sons of Eli, who were also priests, who were raised in Eli's household, you know, they went to Sunday school every single day, they got jobs at the church, were worthless men, which is a bummer. You know, it'd be titled that in the Bible for all future generations. But it says this about them. This is kind of the qualifier. They did not know Yahweh. Somehow, the priest kid doesn't know Yahweh either. The same phrase that was before in Judges chapter two. And what's amazing is Eli has these sons who steal sacrifices from the Lord, that when women come to worship at the temple, they have sex with them. They do everything wrong. That's why they're worthless men. And Eli, when he's very old, he keeps hearing of all the wrong things they're doing and just can't get them to stop. And so God decides, okay, Eli, because your kids are like this, I'm cutting the whole family tree down. There's not going to be future Eli household. You guys are are done. And he's going to raise up someone else named Samuel who was raised with Eli. He knows how Eli raised his kids. He knows Eli's kids. And so Samuel's going to do better, right? Like if you're raised in that scenario, you've seen it, you wrote down they're worthless men and you wrote down why they're going to, you're going to do a better job raising your kids. Well, here's what happens. Later you see in chapter eight, this is what he writes about his kids. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And as a result of his kids, the nation of Israel says, we don't want God to lead us anymore. We don't want this priesthood thing. We want to have kings like all the other nations have. We're done with this. Super dark period for Israel, and it's a huge bummer. So what the heck happened? What happened with these guys that also seems to have happened in the book of Judges with the entire nation? And for me, this is just what the Lord has really been pressing on my heart and what I think it is. Um, You can see it in chapter seven, starting in verse 15. It says, Samuel, he judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, period. So like, he's doing his work. He's the last judge. He's doing what God has asked him to do. He's probably doing a pretty good job. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. 
And there also he judged Israel and he built there an altar to Yahweh. It's interesting to me that his household is almost an afterthought. And so this, this is what happened with me. So um, we, our middle school group, you've probably heard is doing really, really well. There's a bunch of kids there, like upwards of 170. And if I can use a biblical term to describe some of what was happening there, it would be there was no king in the land and the people did what was right in their own sight. So there's a little bit of chaos. So the elders asked if I would go in and help set boundaries because kids really like boundaries and say, hey, we can have so much fun within these boundaries, but you got to stay within the boundaries. The first time you establish boundaries with kids who are used to not having boundaries, what are they going to do? They're going to push those boundaries. So my wife isn't feeling well, so she stays home with our son, but my daughter really wants to come to church. So I bring her, I put her into class, and I go down and I explain kind of the vision and the direction that we're going for in the middle school group with the volunteers. And right off the bat, right after we get done with the volunteers, um, there's the, the one volunteer gets me and she hands me this cylinder that's plastic. I've never seen one of these before in my life. And uh, I go, she goes, I got this from one of the kids. And I go, neat, what is it? And she goes, it's a vape pen. And I go, what is that? And, and so I guess what it is, is it's a cylinder that you can breathe in and it tastes like cotton candy or mango. And it's got just a little bit of nicotine. The part you need to know is it's illegal to have if you're under 21. And that's what matters. So I go outside to talk to the kid who has it because the volunteer doesn't know how to approach this kind of thing. So I go find the kids and I go, okay, who does this belong to? And they go, well, it was, there was a girl who was here. She's a high schooler. She got afraid and she drove off and she left. And I go, okay, what's her name? And so she tells me, they tell me the name. I figure I'm not going to know. Just so happens the person that they name is my neighbor and they live just around the corner from me. I know their mom really well and this isn't going to fly. And so I go, oh, okay, great. I actually know where she lives. So I'll just go talk to her mom after. And the young man standing in front of me goes, you don't know where she lives. And I go, I do. And he goes, no, you don't. And you're not going to talk to her mom. And I go, buddy, she lives near me. I see her ride her skateboard all the time. I know where she lives. And he goes, where does she live? And I go, it's the blue house on Harbeck. And I see his brain shut off. Like, he just, I didn't see that coming. So I made a promise that I'm going to go talk to her mom, because now I have to. And so um, the kids, they go into the class and it's all fine. We do worship, we do teaching, we do worship, service ends, and they, they get let out. There's a little bit of commotion outside, so I go to see what it is and a volunteer grabs me and says, hey, these kids are instigating each other and one of them's dedicated to hurting another kid. I go, okay. So I calm one kid down. I say, you can't do that. He accepts. I go to the other kid and I say, hey, that doesn't fly here, man. If you have a problem with another kid, you have to come and get me. And he goes, no, if I have a problem with another kid, I'm going to handle it. And I go, when you're not at church, sure. When you're here, you cannot do that. And he goes, well, I'm going to. And I go, well, here's the problem. If you get violent with another kid, then you can't be here anymore. And he goes, I don't care. And I go, okay. And I had no idea who his dad is. I don't know this kid at all, but I just took a bluff. And I said, I bet your dad will care. And he goes, yeah, well, you know, we'll see. I, I, I'm not going to call him. He's not going to come till late. And I go, great, okay. And our rule is at eight o'clock, you got to call parents because I don't want to be here all night. He doesn't call parents because he knows I'm waiting for him. So I get my daughter, I put her in my car and my truck and we're listening to kids songs and just watching this kid skateboard until 9.15 when his dad finally shows up. So it's just us in the parking lot. Dad's in the car. I walk up and I go, hey man, how's it going? And he goes, good. And I go, hey, so uh, listen, your son is pretty dedicated to... Uh, you know, he, 
instigating with another student, which happens. Um, here's the problem, though. When I tried to talk to him about it, he told me he just didn't care about what I thought, that, you know, he's really pretty disrespectful to leaders here. And dad goes, uh-oh, well, we're going to have to have a talk about that. And I go, great, that's what I wanted to hear, because I want your son here, but he just has to be able to respect some of the leadership here. And, and here's, what, here's what I want to do. I want him here. So if you take my phone number and you tell me you had a great conversation, I want him back next week. He goes, great, they get, yeah, give him my phone number, and he leaves. So then I get in my car, and I start to head home. And there's like 10 volunteers who have seen parts of this, and I want them to know that it's handled. I want them to know that there's a plan moving forward. I want them to give them the background. So I start making phone calls. Some of them are staff. Start making phone calls, let them know. Like, I tell the same story that I just told you, like four or five times. And then finally, my wife is wondering where I, I am. So I, I answer my wife's phone, and, and she goes, where have you been? I go, oh my gosh, this happened. And my daughter yells, no more phone! And I go, what? And she goes, you have been on the phone since we got in the car, no more phone. And I go, oh, yeah, all right. Like, this has been pretty lame for you. And I hang up. And here's what really I've been faced with. There's two things that are always going to be battling for our attention. One is the urgent. And the urgent is the stuff you can define it and figure it out pretty easy. It's the stuff that if you don't handle it right now, there are going to be consequences that show up really, really soon. Kind of like if a pipe breaks in your washing machine. Like, if I don't handle it, I can't just go, oh, I'll deal with that next week. No, it's going to destroy your floorboards, right? You're going to have a lot more to do if you don't handle it right now. So there's the urgent, which we always get pressed on, and there's always stuff that's going to be there like that. And there's the important. And important stuff doesn't necessarily have immediate consequences if you don't get to it. Like taking your wife on a date. Like, if I don't take my wife on a date tomorrow... It's probably okay because I could take her on a date next week or the week after. But if I never take my wife on a date, there's probably going to be damage, right? There's going to be bigger consequences if I never invest in that relationship. And so for me, maybe for you too, I'm always inundated with the urgent. There's always something that feels like I have to handle this right now and there's consequences to it right now. And I can easily forget to focus on and, and get to the important. And for God, what does he say is really important? I think it's to raise a child up, to train a child up in the way that he should go, hoping that when he's old, he'll never depart from it. That's what we're supposed to be doing, and that's what God has called me to do, but I can get so fixated on the other stuff that's always around us. It could be your work. It could be stuff that's going on with your car. It could be stuff that's going on with your family, whatever, and we miss out on what's really, truly important. Like, if I try to list out what's really important for me, I would say, well, it's important that my kids follow and know Jesus. Well, how often do I really make it a point to make sure they know and follow Jesus? Well, apparently these guys didn't. And I don't want to be like them. If I'm to look at this like a mirror, I go, I don't want that for my kids. So somehow I have to work out and communicate to my kids in a way to where not only do they know about Jesus, but they know Jesus. There's a saying that I really like, and it's that God has no grandkids. Your faith isn't your kid's faith. God wants a personal relationship with your kids. Anyone who has a personal relationship with Jesus is a child of God. God doesn't have grandkids. So we have to somehow raise our children up in a way so that they know God. And for me, something that I think, I, this isn't the only way, this is just a way I thought of, is I think we, you share stories. And you share your stories. You give them your legacy of what God has done in your life. That's what God is telling the Israelites to do. Tell, God, tell your children 
what this means to you, how you saw God move, how you saw God redeem, how you saw God change things. If you share that with your kids, it's more than just stories. It's more than just an interesting tidbit that's in a book. It's, this is, this is the God of my father, and this is the God that I want to follow. I want to experience God in the way that my dad experienced God. I think for me, and maybe for you, I have to work really hard to prioritize what's important instead of the urgent. And I think for me, and hopefully for you, we have so many kids here, I'm almost certain every person here has kids. I think it's prioritizing our kids and telling them the legacy of that all that God has done in us and through us and for us so that they can not only know about Jesus, but know him. Verse 11. And the people of Israel, this is Judges chapter two, we're back there, sorry. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. And they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. This is just a little interesting thing. There's so many people that have an issue with God being angry. Like if you go into Barnes and Noble, there's a whole section with Richard Dawkins and other really brilliant academic people who make a lot of money selling books about how God is angry and how God is malevolent and how God isn't good and, and all this sort of, they have a problem with God being angry. It's actually a really good thing that God gets angry here. I'll explain to you why. If there's a husband who for the sake of argument in this picture loves his wife, dearly, provides for her, is self-sacrificial in serving her, does everything right to her, is always thinking about her, is always doing things for her. You have a husband like that, and then it comes out, there's full evidence, it's not a rumor, it's, it's there, it's apparent that the wife has had an affair, and the husband's response to that is, well, you win some, you lose some. Well, you'd say, well, the husband never loved his wife. Like, that's insanity. Like, the husband's rightful response should be jealous anger. Being like, what have you done? Like what Jesus says. Are you kidding me? That's how God is responding. Our God's a jealous God because that's the, the rightful response to love. Like, you love someone, you're dedicated to that person. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel's called the bride of God, God's bride, and over and over and over again, God's people will run away from God and God gets ticked and he should get ticked. That's not right. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. They, verse 13, they abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths so that the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm, as Yahweh had warned and as Yahweh had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Here's the really interesting thing about our God, is any other religion, it doesn't really matter how you live, really. Like, especially in Canaanite religion, it doesn't matter if you were wicked, it doesn't matter if you were righteous, it doesn't matter how you raised your kids, it, it doesn't matter as long as you're of the right people group and you make the correct sacrifices. 
If you do the right things to your God, if you say the right things, you give him the right stuff, he'll give you favor and he'll give you what you want. Our God is not that way. Our God, regardless of people group, regardless of ethnicity or background, is vehemently opposed to evil and wants righteous people. And so when God's people become evil and decide that they're going to act like Canaanites and look like Canaanites and sacrifice like Canaanites and do what they do, God goes, okay, fine, enjoy the Canaanites. And he lets evil take care of evil. That God goes, this is what you wanted, have at it, go for it. And it's often that that happens with us in our sin. It's the same thing that you're supposed to do when you have an intervention. Like when you have someone who struggles with alcoholism or addiction of, of, and, and they can't get out of it, oftentimes you're supposed to go, okay, hit rock bottom. Enjoy where that goes. See where it gets you. It's not good. You're not going to like it. And here's what's really interesting about our God in all of that. In a people who abandon him and run from him and do the opposite of what God wants to do. They misunderstand his heart. They, they choose to go after other gods at every single available opportunity. Here's what's so interesting about our God, and it's the next verse. It says, Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Why? They didn't, they didn't change. They didn't repent. They didn't, they didn't do anything. But God, if you look at the end of verse 15, saw that last, last sentence, and they were in terrible distress. God saw his people, they're in terrible distress, and said, okay, I'll send a deliverer. I'll get involved. Look, it'll happen again. And this is the cycle that we're going to see over and over and over again in this book. And how clearly does it point us to Jesus, that there are people in distress, people hurt, and then God sends a deliverer. Watch. Verse 18, and Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of Yahweh, and they did not do so. Whenever Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the day of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care or walk in the ways of Yahweh as their fathers did or not. So Yahweh left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So this cycle happens. People go after other gods. God gets angry. God sees their distress. Look at verse 18, at the very end of it, it says, Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning. What happens is God has a people who go after other gods. He gets angry 
and he shows grace, sends a deliverer, tries to redeem them. The people then go, hey, this is rad. Let's go after other gods again. And then it's this cycle. It goes over and over and over again. And here's what's so rad about our God is he does not wait for his people to get all clean, to turn away, to fix themselves before he says, yeah, I'll take you back. No, he comes to them in their awfulness, at their worst, because he's a God of compassion who's moved in empathy for us. If you really understand and get this, it prepares you for um, verses like Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 and 16, where it talks about we have a good high priest who understands us because he was beset with weakness as well. And then tells us that we can, because of Jesus, who understands and is compassionate and knows what we go through, understands our failures, understands our struggles, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. If you really understand that our God is a compassionate God who doesn't wait for you to be good, who doesn't wait for you to fix things, who doesn't wait for you to be perfect before he accepts you, how can you not want to respond the way that he wants you to and walk the way that he wants you to? It's not about sacrifices. It's not about doing the the thing to make God happy. You're not trying to do the right stuff or memorize the right Bible verse or do the right thing, say the right things in order to make God love you. He already loves you. It's now that God has loved you and accepted you, he wants to transform and shape our lives and he wants that to pour into everything that we do, not only our business and not only our, our coworkers and our spouse, but our kids and everything that we do. That's what God wants for us. It's huge that we have a God who is so moved by compassion that he, because honestly, we're these people. We're these people who daily choose or say, claim to be Christians, but go after other gods. And you know that because what's the stuff that you talk the most about? That you inadvertently teach your kids is the most important thing. Like if they could say, what's the thing my mom and dad talk the most about? What would that thing be? When, you're, when you have nothing else going on, you don't have to focus on a project, where does your mind naturally go? It's the thing that we choose to prioritize, that we spend all of our time and effort and energy that we tend to worship and give honor to and, and want our kids to be focused on and excited about and give honor to and worship. And what's so amazing about our God is he doesn't just say, well, you blew it, you're out. Instead, our God sees us as broken people who cannot save themselves, who are caught up in this cycle and instead decides that he's gonna send a deliverer. And the deliverer is going to live the perfect life that you and I never could, not even be an example for us because we could never match up to that example, but instead he does all of the work for us and if we trust in him and we say, okay, Jesus, I want you to take all of my brokenness, all of my <laughs> everything in me that I feel like is that I know is so wrong and the things in me that I don't even know is so wrong. I want you to take all my sin. And then when God looks at me, he sees a perfect life. He sees Jesus because he's a God of compassion who understands our weakness and where we're at. So Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't be weepers who weep because of consequences, but that we'd be those who rend our hearts. We'd be people who want to know you and want to draw close to you and that we'd be people who would be eager and excited to teach our kids about you in a way that would cause them to want to follow you as well, God. Jesus, I pray that we would allow you to be the potter and that we would be the clay and that we'd be willing and, and active 
and letting ourselves be molded more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. You gave your life for us so that we can live your life today. So help us today to be Jesus to our kids, to our spouse, to our coworkers. Lord Jesus, help us to change the community to be lights where you have us planted. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus, amen. Amen, go get your kids. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.